Welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast, a product of Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture. I'm Jackson Stansel. And I'm Samantha Teton. And we come to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews and panels with experts, producers, and innovators from all sectors of digital technology, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. All right, well, welcome back to the Farm Bits Podcast. We are continuing in our nitrogen management series, and today we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. So if you've been listening previously, you've probably already realized that I am not your usual host. So I'm Laura Thompson, a Nebraska Extension Educator. And I'm Joe Luck, Associate Professor and Precision Ag Engineer. And if you're missing your normal hosts, Jackson Stansel and Samantha Teton, not to worry. Uh, Today we are flipping the script, and Jackson and Sam are going to be in the hot seat as our interviewees. So I'm really excited that we're doing this episode as Sam and Jackson host the Farm Bits podcast each week. You don't get to hear a lot about their own research and work, but both of them have been doing some really incredible work related to precision nitrogen management. So I'm excited that today they've agreed to be the interviewees and that you get to hear from them and learn about all the work that they've been doing. And Sam and Jackson both just within the last couple of weeks completed their master's degrees at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Sam graduated with a master's in mech systems management, and Jackson graduated with a master's in ag and biological systems engineering. Congrats to them both. We'll pause so everybody can applause a little bit. Uh, A lot of hard work over the past few years. Um, And in addition to all the work they did on the research side, this podcast is all because of the two of them. Supported a ton of extension work helped out in the classroom. So we're extremely proud of both of them. Um, So we thought this would be a great time to have them recap their research, talk about the experiences they had and the work they've been doing with precision nitrogen management. Okay, so before we really dive into the details and in-depth into your work, can you just give a really high-level overview of your work? Like how would you explain the research you've been doing in like a two-sentence elevator pitch kind of description. Yeah, I guess since I'm in you go first, first, yeah. first time, right? <laughs> so uh, for my work, basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to make nitrogen use more efficient. We want farmers to be more profitable and more efficient in their overall nitrogen use. Here in Nebraska, a lot of farmers put their nitrogen on via fertigation. There's a pretty sizable percentage. And so my research is tailored around uh, using aerial imagery to inform the timing of those fertigation applications. Uh, and that's that's pretty much our goal. And automating that through software is the engineering side of it. So Awesome. And we'll get way more into details as we go. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yep. Um, the mission of my research is really similar with the idea to improve nitrogen use efficiency and improve profitability for producers. But mine was on non-irrigated sites using active crop canopy sensors and UAVs, which all would, uh, both of those methods would make a variable rate um, prescription or variable rating the nitrogen throughout the field based upon crop response. Awesome. Yep. Great. So Jackson and Sam, we kind of want to dig into your research a little bit. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your individual research projects, how they were set up, uh, maybe an overall summary of results, and then could you discuss some of the outcomes that you were hoping for thinking of when you started down this road? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So both of our research, we were very fortunate that we got to be a part of the on-farm research network and that we were on farmers' fields. And so we're able to compare that to growers' current management 
to our strategies using sensor-based management techniques. So that was probably the coolest thing. It's an educational point for the farmers in the area um, and a great way for us to compare to current standard practices. And it's a replicated, um, a complete block design. And as I said, the growers get to decide everything that they would like to do and then we're out there on other uh, treatment strips. So to go into how we set these experiments up a little bit more, um, we're going in with a high clearance nitrogen applicator with active crop canopy sensors mounted on the front of it. And we're applying between the V8 to V12 or V14 uh, corn growth stage. That is when most nitrogen is being taken up um, by the corn plant. And so you want your nitrogen to be applied right before that most uptake time is to reduce the amount of time that we could have potential nitrogen losses. And so with that, the sensors are scanning at the same time that the nitrogen is being applied, which is so cool to see. So you're having like a variable rate of nitrogen being applied as yes, you're moving through the you. field. Um, yes. You're getting these instantaneous like sensor readings that are then being converted into how much nitrogen and <laughs> responding as you move through the field. Correct. So yes. So as the active crop canopy sensors are scanning, they're collecting NDRE data and that's converting into a nitrogen rate that is varying across the field. Exactly. And then with the drone-based technology, we're uh, flying the drone the day before, before the, we're going to go out there with the applicator, making a prescription map. Uh, mine's not automated, so it takes a little bit of time. And then we're applying that the same day as the active crop canopy sensors on different treatments. Uh, do you want to add to that before yeah. I go into results? Yeah, before you go into results. <laughs> yeah, I guess, so with SAM studies, they're, they're you know, what you would think of as, as true mm -hmm. strips in a field, right? They're field length, field length yep. strips that are that are going over 16 rows generally. Mm -hmm. um, everything's lined up next to each other. With fertigation, you can't really do that because your application implement is going in a circle and <laughs> it's you know basically 1,250 feet long. And so you have a, a really large swath of, of land that you're working with. And so the way that we set up our fertigation studies is basically in 15 degree sectors uh, that spanned about half of a quarter section. Um, and with those 12 sectors that we had out there in the field, we had four different reps. So we had the randomized complete block mm -hmm. design, um, but we also had some embedded rate blocks within those larger sectors that, that, you know, helped us both with imagery interpretation and also to kind of calibrate uh, our results. So it's kind of a unique study design. I haven't seen anybody else really doing like, you know, field size fertigation studies, um, before. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting design and. <laughs> You know, something that we couldn't have really done before we had yield monitor data exactly. to collect data in these like pie shaped wedges <laughs> rather than strips. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, which is a cool setup. I mentioned earlier that we put rate blocks into each one of our different sectors out there in the field. So that, that's kind of where our protocol begins. And I'll even back up a little bit farther than that. We collect basically four different types of data. We collect elevation, uh, slope, soil EC and yield data and use those to generate management zones. And those management zones help us to kind of uh, identify the spatial variability within the field um, and, and lay out those rate blocks where they need to be in order to, to assess how the crop is responding to nitrogen. And so then with an early season uh, application, whether that's with a strip till rig, whether that's anhydrous, whether that is two by two, you know, if you're putting it on with the pivot at V6, however you really want to do it or side dress it, um, we put those rate blocks into the field uh, and kind of integrate it with how that grower typically manages their farm. Uh, and then from basically V6 onward, uh, we get out there with the drone and we fly the field each week uh, to collect imagery. And so um, once a week, we're getting that imagery and then we have kind of a six, six step process that results uh, in the end in a fertigation application. So we'll, we'll 
collect the imagery, process that imagery, analyze the imagery, which basically pulls out uh, the sufficiency index that we've talked about earlier, use that sufficiency index and an algorithm to generate a fertigation decision that is actually independent for each one of our sectors. So each sector could get uh, a different amount of nitrogen in any given week. And so every one of those sectors will be managed differently over the course of the growing season. Um, and then from that decision for each one of those sectors, we make the fertigation prescription that then gets sent out to a variable rate fertigation injection pump uh, there in the field. Um, and that application is then executed uh, and it's, it's executed in accordance with however that grower wants to irrigate their field in a given week with that depth and, and corresponding speed on the pivot. And we continue this process all the way until we get to, uh, I guess, historically, we've done it until R2. But one of the things that we're looking at is, is moving maybe towards R3, close to R4, uh, just based on some of the results that we've had. But we, we terminate the, the process there in the reproductive growth stages and then just kind of wait for the yield data to come back and, and see how it turned out. Um, so can you, you mentioned the rate blocks. Can you kind of expand a little more? Like how big are these blocks? Sure. What kind of rates are in there? Like how... Um, feasible is this to implement or automated to like establish these rate blocks yep. and like why is it so important that they're there sure so it's it's really important that they're there for our, our imagery algorithms is kind of the main main reason they're there and also they're very useful for looking at what the actual yield response to nitrogen was at the end of the season so they're two different two different you know, two purposes there, from them right? yeah um generally we're looking at about 40 feet wide by 100 feet long is, okay. is typically what we're looking at. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of debate how good the yield data quality is within, you know, that that stretch there um, as far as analysis goes. But that's typically how big one single plot is. And so we will have anywhere between two and four different plots within a, a given rate block out there in the field. They're all pretty much adjacent to each other. Um, and it's it's very feasible to put those out there in the field. Um, with modern rate controllers, you do have to, you still have to compensate for some of the lag time that, that we know is associated sure, with rate controllers yeah. and, and actually getting there. So we, we typically make our prescriptions uh, for blocks that are much larger than what we actually need in the field. Um, but we actually had a, a situation this year as we're continuing on in research where we I literally was just sitting at my desk. Uh, and I had the John Deere Operations Center pulled up for one of my growers. And uh, he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm at the field. You know, I I'd appreciate if you'd upload the prescription, just set up my desk, click the button. And I basically was watching him put put the rate blocks in as he was driving through the field virtually on my screen as I was still coding, uh, which was <laughs> it was a really cool experience. Right. Because I was getting to see how how quickly the rate controller was responding. And fortunately, we did make the blocks long enough because we really weren't hitting that target rate until we were dead center in that block. And really for that, you only had 30 or 40 feet left out of that 150 that were prescribed, you know, and some of that's related to operational speed. Some of that's related to a lot of different things. But I guess what I'm saying is with commercially available technologies, it's very realistic to send these prescriptions out and get them executed in the field. Very um, automated. They never even like exactly. <laughs> worry about it. It's just happening. Exactly. Never had to worry about putting the thumb drive. It was just it yeah, popped up on the monitor yeah. and click OK. And so. so these blocks are really there to serve as kind of a reference. Mm -hmm. um, this is what the corn looks like if it has less nitrogen. This is what it looks like if it has more nitrogen and to be able to calibrate exactly. the rest of the image and help inform what that bulk of the field needs. Right? Exactly. Yep. What that management is going to be for the for that area in which it's embedded. And so yeah. you can't really make any more decisions outside of that. But, you know, combined with some other pieces of data, like I talked about earlier, the management zone aspects mm -hmm. um, and things that we know about the field 
and, and thresholds that we've learned as well, you know, we're able to kind of make those decisions based on, on what the reflectance is in those areas. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Great. Um, and then some results um, for my sites for both um, sensor types. So let's all just say sensor-based technology in general. It improved nitrogen use efficiency on all of the sites. So I had nine research sites over two years. And we improved um, or maintained profitability on all but one or two sites. And with those, we went back and tried to track down some things that may have happened or that we could improve. So with each of those, there are certain case scenarios. But we were really excited for the improved nitrogen use efficiency. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess on the fertigation side, out of the 10 different sites that we had over the course of two years, 94% showed increases in nitrogen use efficiency versus typical grower management. 59% um, of them showed increases in profitability versus typical grower management. And if you look at kind of the median, and this isn't talking statistically significant or anything like <laughs> that, but median numerical differences, um, one of our particular approaches to fertigation management, because we had different parameters uh, in different years, one of our particular approaches actually was able to get to $8 and about 30 cents an acre better than the grower with about a 15, um, a 15 unit increase in PFP. So pretty significant results there, but that was only carried out in one year. And we really need a few more years of data to be confident in what we're seeing. Do you want to say what PFP is? Yeah, I should say that, <laughs> right? Yeah. So PFP is partial factor of productivity. It's basically the kilograms of grain per kilograms of nitrogen, mm -hmm. pounds of grain per pounds of nitrogen, however you want to do it. Sure. Well, that's great. So really promising results, mm -hmm. um, seeing some opportunity that the sensor approaches are really uh providing opportunity to improve over what the growers are mm -hmm. typically doing. We should also add that we're using prices from that year. So especially right. this year when we have corn prices going up, we have nitrogen prices going mm -hmm. up, all those results could really change and could potentially be more opportunities in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. So let's talk then a little bit about some of the challenges or hurdles uh, for farmers as they're looking at kind of adopting this. So. Uh, you kind of described the, the sensor approach. You saw positive results in terms of yield and profit. How did the farmers respond to that? Um, what were their kind of reaction? And, you know, I guess, what do you think are the things that are going to limit their adoption of these approaches that you brought up? Yeah. 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 So starting with the active crop canopy sensors, um, I think people get really excited when they hear about the technology. It's something that's very easy to use. You plug them in, you go out to the field, you're scanning, um, and then you're applying nitrogen in real time. So that's really exciting. But I think there's this risk involved that's really hard to overcome. You don't know when you go out to the field how much nitrogen it's going to be applying. Mm -hmm. So you don't know if it's going to be applying enough. You don't know if you have enough nitrogen sitting by your field. There's just that risk that I think is really hard to overcome um, when you're thinking about adopting that technology. Um, there's other things as well um, that maybe you can't get around with any nitrogen management, but you just don't know how much potential you've left in the season. So it's hard to make recommendations with that. And all those things influence the nitrogen algorithm or how the system works. Uh, and soils, I mean, there's lots of different characteristics that we're still trying to nail down, but I think the risk is the number one. Yeah. And even I guess in your situation where you're working mm -hmm. in dryland, there's just the inherent risk of applying in season with no method Rainfall. of incorporation mm -hmm. guaranteed. Yep. Right. That not necessarily a risk specific to the sensors, but just of that timing and approach in general. Yes. Makes it challenging. Yep. yep. That is a hard risk mm -hmm. to swallow, you know, when you don't know how that's going to mm -hmm. come out. Yeah. But yeah. 
So then to drones. Yeah. And so with drones, you do have some of this, this advantage mm -hmm. of like you're able to get out and get above the crop earlier on. You have a good idea of what that prescription is going to look like before you ever go to the field. And if you need to make any adjustments, right? So if a, if a grower is uncomfortable with the amount of nitrogen that's being applied and, the, and they want to have a little bit of buffer room in there for, you know, if it is a really high potential crop later in the season, they're able to adjust that in advance. And so I think that is kind of the, the major mm -hmm. uh, advantage for drones. Um, as far as the risks of adoption, I mean, drones don't scale very well, right? Like you still have to go out there and you have to take 30, 40 minutes to fly a full quarter section. That may only be a you know a small fraction of what that producer has to get done in a given right. day. Uh, and even for a consultant, it may be a little bit too time prohibitive. Um, and so I guess stepping beyond drones and then maybe more just generally multispectral aerial imagery, I think there are some more opportunities uh, with satellite imagery as satellite imagery continues to improve. Uh, to really scale that up and it'll it'll diminish some of the risk although the cost you know may still be fairly high for that so yeah yeah um what about kind of your interaction with the farmers and how they viewed this approach that you yeah. tried out yeah at least on the fertigation side i think a lot, a lot of farmers are very encouraged by it um it is such kind of a, a niche place because there's not really any management out there commercially that is targeted mm -hmm. for fertigation specifically yeah and so for some of these guys that are trying to make better decisions for fertigation this is i think a really exciting opportunity um you know with having to put the rate blocks in the field and, and some of these some of these other aspects of it right like it's not it's not just imagery mm -hmm. it's kind of one of the main things with our fertigation approach it requires kind of a, a change in management strategy it doesn't mean that it can't integrate with current management but it does require kind of a paradigm shift in terms of how you do your management and i think that is something that that growers that I'm even working with right now have kind of a hard time swallowing for doing it on all their acres. Um, but I think they're very excited about the potential yeah. that it could bring. Yeah. So for sure. Jackson, Sam, you both worked a lot with farmers in your projects. Uh, what are some of the barriers that you see farmers have to overcome to adopt sensor-based fertigation management and uh, sensor-based nitrogen management and rain-fed cropping systems? And what can we do to help farmers get past those barriers? What are some of the next steps that need to happen there? Yeah. I think one of them, I think one of the first ones is a mindset type of thing. And I don't know how we're going to overcome that, but I think we've had a lot of different technologies. We've had a lot of, we've, I mean, in the series, we've talked about models. Um, we've talked yeah. about sensors and you still go to a producer and a lot of them are still, I mean, maybe bushel to pounds of nitrogen and they're just doing a direct amount to apply with their yield goal. And that's a good strategy, but we have a lot of great technology out there now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big challenge. Um, yeah, that's my first one. We have a lot more, but <laughs> yeah, I, I guess when I think about the, the three major things that will impact sensor-based fertigation specifically, and I think this actually extends out to generally mm -hmm. sensor-based management for nitrogen. Number one is error. Like, mm -hmm. like we, we aren't always sure that these sensors are, are getting it right, right? And, and they, the sensors and the algorithms really behind the sensors, more importantly, need a lot of calibration to make sure that they're using the sensors appropriately and providing that right rate. The second thing is there is a pretty significant cost to these sensors. Like, it's not something that's not costly. And, and even if you look at image acquisition, you still have to pay for that on a per acre basis generally. And so that, that cost... Uh, 
combined with the air can already be kind of a, a barrier to adoption. But then time is also a major, major thing, especially for producers that are trying to get out there uh, and they're trying to spray their fields during the same time interval that they need to be monitoring for nitrogen. They're trying to do all these other activities on their farm. And so I think there's a huge opportunity for automation in that particular area. If you're able to get to the point that that an algorithm is well-developed enough that it can be automated and you truly can have that workflow. Um, so I think there's a huge opportunity for that in terms of, and I know I'm talking mm-hmm. a lot, but nope, don't in, keep going. <laughs> in, ter- in, in terms of like kind of getting past these barriers, one thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is how do we de-risk these technologies mm-hmm. for the very first time, right? Like how, how, does a, how does a farmer pick it up and try it for a few years and have it be kind of a lower risk opportunity? I don't know if that's insurance for the technologies, like if they're well vetted enough that an, like an insurance agency is willing to provide insurance on that technology and a farmer using it if something does go wrong. Uh, and I don't, I don't really know how you mm-hmm. de-risk it. Maybe it's carbon credits that are offering, mm-hmm. you know, incentives for farmers who pick up this technology. And all of a sudden you can get that carbon credit payment to make up for what you may lose. I don't know what it is, but I think de-risking is something that's going to have to happen for these technologies to get adopted more. Yeah. And along those lines is we've been doing this research and have promising results, but farmers still want to see it on their own acres. And it's hard to sometimes do that. I mean, to do like my research with the active crop canopy sensors and the high clearance nitrogen applicator, that's a huge upfront cost, like you said, but they want to see it on their own farm first, which is what the on-farm research network can do. But um, there's just so much variability in weather and soils and everything that sometimes it just takes a little bit jumpstart or it takes a little bit yeah. to get the over the curve or the adoption curve. Yeah. Well, and like, and like something you've seen, and you know, mm-hmm. with, with um, one of our producers that we cooperate with, one management change like cover crops <laughs> yeah. can have such a huge mm-hmm. impact, really, on on how well the sensors perform within a certain management strategy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the same thing with fertigation. You know, right. if, there's, if there's a big early season application or a really small early season application, that can impact. How, how the rest of the, the management strategy goes. So Yeah, it definitely has to be looked at on as a system approach and right. everyone's system is different and really trying to, um, you know, take that into account. Like you mentioned, that's really mm-hmm. seeing it on your own field and your own very specific management strategy is really valuable. Right. You mentioned a little bit, Jackson, a little bit about the time um, it takes <laughs> on processing and the images and things like that. So could you expand maybe a little bit more on some of the challenges related to maybe the image acquisition and then also kind of share a little bit about um, some of the work you're doing uh, to try to automate some of this and the tools you're trying to develop to do that? Sure. Yeah. So in terms of image acquisition, I mean, Sam and I have had many days where we've (laughs) driven around between fields. and, And like I said earlier, it's, you know, about 50 minutes really from putting together that drone to taking it out of the air. And that's to get essentially 80 to 160 acres worth of imagery. So it's, it's not super high throughput. That's what the and with a fixed wing drone. Yep. Yeah. And, and so like if you've got a multi-rotor, it may even be a longer yeah. time. Yeah. So you run into wind and, and really I'm just going to generally call it environmental challenges. Yep. Right? Yep. <laughs> so you have all these They're environmental humorous. challenges, yes. you got clouds, whatever, especially mm-hmm. here in Nebraska. Right. Yeah. And all of that, uh, you know, it can be kind of a pain on the acquisition side, but really it's more influential on the processing side, right? And so when you when you take imagery of a field, you essentially have a bunch of individual images that you take during the course of a flight that have to be stitched together um, using some sort of, of software. Um, and when you have clouds, you have wind that's blowing corn all over the place, uh, any sort of shadows, that 
processing can take even longer. So your processing time just increases a lot. And so with drone imagery, you're already looking at about two hours to get an image actually out of a field, maybe three hours. So that, that's that's part of the time cost, but then also doing the analysis, right? So if you want to get rid of uh, some of the the artifacts and imagery, like if, for example, in my case, pivots, mm -hmm. soil pixels, if soil you're flying pixels. early on, yeah, yeah. And so if you, if you're trying to actually process all these out, if you're doing it manually, it's it's a really long process, and even in the GIS software. Um, and then if you're computing statistics on top of that, and you're actually trying to apply algorithms manually, I mean, you can see how the time adds up quite a bit, uh, and all those extra processes from what I've, I've seen personally doing this manually for fertigation in the first year of this study is around two hours to really produce all the layers that you needed to, for a field for a full prescription to give to a, to a grower, to get from that image, to get from the image after it's been stitched all the way to the nitrogen recommendation. Yeah. yeah. And so if you think about doing that on, you know, 20 fields, that's pretty much a 40 hour work week for somebody right there. And, and that's, I mean, that's a, that's a very full week. And so what we've been working on is, is kind of putting together a software uh, we call in time fertigation management system that essentially automates the entire process from import of that imagery through export of uh, all the prescription layers and analytics layers that are needed to make a fertigation a prescription for a particular field and, and execute that application. Um, and those are, you know, formatted for the pumps that they're going to and the rate controllers. Um, and, and it's it's basically reduced the time that it takes to get from that image to that prescription to about seven minutes for a drone image and to about a minute and a half to three minutes for satellite. So it's it's a pretty quick turnaround at yeah, this point. Yeah, it's a huge uh, decrease in time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And imagine if it was satellite imagery and then... Exactly. into a prescription, it would just be instantaneous. Yeah, so. yep, pretty much. So you're kind of describing like the future, maybe the more uh, attainable application would be using something like satellite imagery, using this processing system that you're developing that really cuts the processing time and automates the workflow. Um, do you see any challenges like with using, transitioning to the satellite imagery? Um, what you've been testing mostly yeah. so far has been on drones. Are there some unique challenges there? Yeah, I think the the main challenge is that the NDRE index that we use, uh, which is especially effective as you get into the later stages of corn growth, which is really when fertigation is happening for the most part, it's just not available or at least not widely available uh, in commercial satellite applications right now. And Planet Labs is um, apparently coming out with a lot of NDRE imagery, which is very exciting, but it's still at three meters of resolution. And so... If you think about using this for early season imagery and you have inconsistent crop canopy, you maybe have weeds in certain locations and inconsistent soil background, maybe different soil types that are affecting your reflectance a little bit more within your imagery, you can't filter that out at three meters. If you're capturing yeah. imagery at 12 centimeters a pixel, it's a little bit more realistic, which is what we do with drones. Uh, and really, there are drone technologies that you're getting down to half centimeters a pixel now if you really want to. Yeah. But you just can't you can't quite do the data cleaning and data quality control with satellite that you can with drones right now. And so I think it's definitely a transitional period and there will be a, a lot of challenges in the calibration. In so the we do a lot of calibration yep. with the drones, which you can do at a smaller level mm -hmm. or when we talk about the sufficiency index that can be on a smaller level. And all of that gets magnified when or gets has to be um, larger on a larger scale with right. satellites. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think um, just trying to think through 
you know, when you're out at the field with a drone, you know what kind of quality of data you're mm. right. um, collecting. You know if it's good conditions, if there's clouds. Um, you kind of have a little more control. Absolutely. Um, definitely see the need to move towards something that's more efficient and quick to mm. collect, but just kind of wondering what those challenges or trade-offs and like ensuring that your image quality is there right. as you're getting these satellite images that you have no control over, like right. when it's passing over, what the weather is doing. Yeah. And maybe don't even necessarily know, like, is that shadow a cloud or exactly. like, is that mm -hmm. something that's really happening in the field? Like it, yeah. you weren't there to, you know, mm -hmm. really like yeah. observe that. So and, yeah. and challenges. there have been a lot of, I think, advancements in computer vision and mm -hmm. kind of machine learning on those aspects. And so planet, for example, does, they will not release an image or basically they, they start tagging every image that has over 15% cloud cover via some algorithm that they have on the back yeah. end. And so that's the type of stuff that may get stored in image meta metadata as it's coming down, right? And so if you're thinking about automating this process, it may be one of those things where, okay, that metadata has to be checked before we ever let it run through the algorithm. Um, and I do think there are a lot of a lot of advancements there. I mean, basic clustering algorithms, actually. I, I did a project in the computer vision class that we have here that was literally looking at how do you, fill, how do you pull out clouded and shadowed images from a data set um, from like Teravion when they were still operating. So we were looking at Teravion images and using just a basic K-means clustering approach with some additional thresholding, we were able to basically identify close to 90% of those clouded and shadowed images correctly and actually literally form polygon boundaries around those clouded around areas yeah. that matched up at very high uh, efficiency with manually drawn boundaries around those clouds. And so there's, there are a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me that are working on these algorithms. And I'm sure that, you know, there, there are some good automated algorithms coming to be able to really clean that data. Well, um, it's just, it, we're maybe not there yet, but I think that people are working on those. Yeah. That's great to hear, especially since that's going to be important as you kind of are able to implement these into like more applications beyond just looking at these, you know, images, being able to actually make actionable items off yeah. of them. Yeah, absolutely. So, my question is going to follow a little bit on next steps. So, Jackson, what what's next steps for in time? How we can get that out there for people to use, and then also Sam, probably follow up with you on you know what do we need to do next to get people really think about sensor based nitrogen management on our other fields? Yep. I get to go I've, first. I've been, I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so to start off, I think, so one of the challenges that I didn't dive into too much, but is that we don't have that predictive part when we're using sensor-based nitrogen. And so I think the future is to somehow incorporate that. If we need to know the yield potential, maybe that's using a model-based approach and we're helping inform the model or calibrate the model or adjust it using imagery or active sensors or something like that. I think we can't just be reactive. We can't just go by one method anymore. There's limitations to all of these and we need to figure out a way to combine them. Um, so I think that's one thing. The other limitation of my research that I think is going to have to be addressed was the some logistic challenges. So if it's time to apply nitrogen, um, it's hard to get to all the fields that you need to if your sensors say, okay, you should go out and apply today. Or if you know that a rain's coming and so you want it to get incorporated, but you can't go apply all your fields in one day. So, you know, something really futuristic automation type techniques, something that we can apply the nitrogen um, where it's not just taking your high clearance nitrogen applicator to all the fields. So I think there's some major challenges, major hurdles that we're going to have to uh, come up with with some new technology.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's th- thinking about the dry land system is it's, <laughs> it's so tough because like one of the major things is mm-hmm. that application timing. Yeah. It's like how do you get around that? And uh, robotics mm-hmm. maybe the only way to to do it eventually. Um, on the end time side, I guess um, we're trying to push towards commercialization and, and just try to get it out there and, and allow people to start using it. Uh, right now, the, the program basically exists as a desktop application that is written in, in kind of a language that is uh, very hard to scale from. It's, it's a great analytical language, but it's not really a, kind of a, a user interface friendly language. Um, and so one of the big next steps is obviously to get a better prototype out there that's built like a web application, like so many of these different uh, commercially available solutions are. Um, and, and so we're, we're pursuing intellectual property on the method um, and, and we'll see what comes back there. Um, but, you know, hopefully we'll see if we, we get a startup out of it or, or something <laughs> like that. And, and it really, I think that's that's the tough part, right? It's like on the academic side, it's hard to maintain the funding that's necessary and the manpower that's necessary to keep a project like this going for years on end and actually have it be scalable enough for people to benefit from. Uh, and so, you know, as much as it's like, well, you know, why, why is it necessarily being commercialized? Well, in some ways, that may be for the greater benefit of whoever wants to use it. And there's still a long way to go on the research side, right? We still have a lot of things to, to bet out. Um, but it does seem like it's a solution that has a pretty good opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, that might be a kind of a good transition. Um, we mentioned at the beginning that you both have just graduated with your master's degrees. Um, so maybe uh, could you kind of share what's next for you? You just talked about what you're yeah, doing. doing. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, I'm actually sticking around uh, at the University of Nebraska to host farm biz primarily. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Sam, Sam has left me with that duty now at this yeah. point. Um, but I'm, I'm pursuing a PhD in biological engineering. Uh, staying with with Dr. Luck as my advisor um, and going to continue working kind of in the fertigation space and kind of pursue the development of a, of a high resolution fertigation system. Uh, so trying to get down to subspan, maybe even to sprinkler level resolution. Um, it's probably going to end up being two to three sprinkler resolution just, you know, for the realities of, of irrigation uh, application. But um, getting to that higher resolution so that we can really increase I guess first on the research side, because it's going to be primarily a research tool for the the you know the early lifespan of it. Um, but to increase the number of reps that we can get out in the field, because if you can get down to you know subspan resolutions, all of a sudden you're looking at probably close to 100, maybe even over 100 reps that you can put out in the field and still have you know good quality yield data from. Um, if you're if you're willing to plant a field in a circle, and so it, it could help accelerate a lot of this nitrogen dynamics and water dynamics research that we really want to achieve, um, you know, by by essentially decoupling our irrigation systems and our nitrogen application systems and having variable rate on both. I mean, there are a lot of cool studies that you can kind of think about doing uh, once that tool is available. So that's that's what I'll be working on for the next three years. And then I guess in all the, all the free time that's associated <laughs> with that, trying to see if we can keep furthering in time. So. I'm excited to see how it progresses <laughs> in the next few years. So everyone needs to update their pivots to... Not now. <laughs> to wait till end time comes out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and I am... I've now, this will be my last episode on farm bits. So it's I'm, the farewell it is the farewell. Yeah. Yep. So I am officially done um, besides some publications and some things like that. So um, I now, what I'm doing now is I started a job with Golden Harvest 
and I'm covering um, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas as a developmental agronomist. So I'm currently in training. I get to uh, learn from all these excellent agronomists and help them. I'm flying fields with our drone technology, um, helping with plots and trials and things like that. And, uh, and then hoping within a year or two, I'll have my own territory and will be an agronomist uh, with Golden Harvest. So, All right. So this week, for the first time, we're going to be bringing in listener questions. So really excited to add this feature. If you have questions that you'd like to have answered during a future Farm Bits podcast episode, uh, you can submit those via Twitter in advance. So our first listener question today is coming from Steve from Wahoo, Nebraska. And Steve I wanted you to comment about how soil type really influences the need of nitrogen. Um, so maybe you could comment a little bit about that influence um, of nitrogen need, how that varies based on different soil types. Absolutely. So Jackson and I both have the privilege of working on very different soil types. Yeah. Uh, you mm-hmm. went all the way to, up to Elgin, Nebraska, where you've very sandy, yeah. And I'm in the very southeast corner where it's really heavy clay. Um, you know, your CECs can be above 30. I mean, it's it's very different type. Mm-hmm. And so, I think the point though with nitrogen is that it's it can the challenges are so different with each soil type. So with sandy soils, it's your primarily your primary challenge is leaching and making sure that you're kind of spoon feeding that nitrogen in order to prevent all that going out. Um, with, uh, heavier soils, it's more, we're concerned about runoff. We're concerned about incorporation. We're concerned about volatilization when you're applying. So I don't know if there's a soil that has more need per se, or if whether there's one that's harder than the other, but they all just have very unique challenges. Um, your drainage can influence all those things. Um, cause that's changing conversions. Um, there are different organic matter levels and your ability to mineralize that nitrogen, CEC levels, all those types of things just introduce different challenges and which is what makes nitrogen unique for each field. Yeah, it, it's, I guess it's not so much about like what the need is, particularly on that, on that field. It's more about in what particular year, how much are you holding on to, right? Mm-hmm. Like how much do you have available in the soil when the, when the crop really needs it? How can we minimize those losses? Exactly. And I guess to like tie that into our sensor-based uh, approach here on this, on this mm-hmm. episode and, and our topic, if you're thinking about different organic matter levels and kind of the temporal variation that we have in weather and how much that can change your mineralization year to year, how much big rain events can change your leaching from year to year, even within within a single growing season, you may have enough nitrogen, you know, for the early part of the season and then all of a sudden run out due to really large rain events or, you know, irrigation mismanagement later in the season. I think that's really where sensor-based management can shine, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're thinking about kind of the dry land scenario that you work in, if you have some of those big early season rains, or if it's been dry there early in the season and it's affected certain parts of your fields worse than it has others, you can cut back where you need to in certain areas of that field and also put more in those areas that have higher potential with the sensors, right? Mm -hmm. On the fertigation side, where we're dealing a lot more with sandy soils and we deal with some of this leaching and, or just the fact that we can't hold on to a lot in that, in that soil profile. And it can very easily get flushed with any sort of rain event or irrigation event, getting that timing, right. And, and being able to apply multiple times only when the crop needs it over the course of that growing season uh, is really important. And if we've got a cover crop that's decomposing later in the season, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we need to cut back on nitrogen, but, this, but we don't really know that, right. Unless the sensors are out there kind of telling us, what's going on. Otherwise, it, it looks like it could be at, at risk of not having enough nitrogen, um, which is one thing that we saw in one of our fertigation fields last year. So 
I just think there's a lot of potential with this huge variability and need, not only spatially, but temporally as well, to use these sensors to your advantage. Exactly. Yeah. If we know that soils all react differently, how can we capture that with a variable rate? either prescription or responding with sensors. Yeah, Mm -hmm. thinking about not only that spatial variability that occurs between fields, Mm -hmm. like in the very different regions that you are working (laughs) in, but even within a field that there can be uh, maybe ponded areas or sandy knolls or, you know, all different uh, textures and landscape positions that are going to be influencing the nitrogen dynamics, which in turn eventually uh, results in what that different nitrogen need would be. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks, Steve. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> it is fun to have a listener question. I like that a lot. Hopefully, actually. it like catches it, on. Yeah. All right, Jackson and Sam, uh, you've done a great amount of work over the past two years, both your graduate programs. We've been fortunate to have you uh, here in our digital ag team. Uh, just wondering if you had uh, farmers, agronomists, and researchers. Uh, in front of you, what's some advice you would give to them as they move down this road road of uh, digital ag? And then also a follow-up question would be, uh, if you have graduate students listening in, what's some advice that you might give grad students uh, as they're consider future graduate students or current graduate students as they're thinking about uh, starting a program like this? Yeah, it's, well, that's that's always (laughs) a tough question. Um, on the farmer side, it's really hard to give a farmer advice because mm-hmm. they have so much experience on their their fields. They know their operation. And I know just a tiny, small part of maybe how we can try to help that operation get a little bit better. Um, and that's specifically on kind of the image and, and, and data side. I, I think the biggest advice that I have is there's a lot of data being collected on your farm. And you, you need to have some way of leveraging that to actually impact your farm. It can't just sit, you know, in storage on, on a thumb drive all the time that needs to produce some sort of, of actionable decision. And so I, I think using that data and also taking time to let this data kind of play out and some of the decisions that you make and some of the technology actually play out uh, and not just looking at it for one year and saying it didn't work and, and kind of letting it go. I think those are kind of my two biggest things is just stick with the process and, and also make sure you're using kind of that value that you're already creating on your farm. So, mm-hmm. I think my piece of advice would be so coming from like an agronomy background and then I came to this department and just thinking about technology and precision ag, it was very overwhelming. And I thought that these, like, I thought technology was something that people way smarter than me was developing. It was something that I could never understand and things like that. So I guess my piece of advice is to, like, go ask questions. These things, when we talk about them, they're not quite as complex as you would think once you start to break them down. Go talk to your extension educators or the experts here. Um there's so much technology out there and I know it seems really intimidating, but there's also some really great opportunity to go try things out. So. And all of a sudden uh, we all think you're a better engineer than we are. Down no. <laughs> That's no. about how it works. Right? <laughs> no, but I'm starting to understand it. I can try to follow along. <laughs> yeah, well, do a good job. So I guess for grad students out there, mm-hmm. some of the most fun I think that we've had is like doing some of these extension uh, events and, and trying to actually get involved in, in projects outside of our, thesis research. Um, and so for any of those grad students that are listening, like I highly encourage you to do that and try to get out on as many you know farms and interact with as many people as possible, because I think it's really easy to get siloed into your office and mm-hmm. what exactly you're doing. 
and doing the other projects, like how much we've learned from our interviews, yeah. it kind of develops that systems thinking approach, right? And so I think that's a really important thing to, to do. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Bits podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can be found in the show notes. We'd like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect reviews of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bits.